strange thing happened to me yesterday when I was prepping for the show. Um, I started seeing stories that I want to cover, and I never stopped seeing stories that I want to cover. So usually when I'm prepping for the show, there's never a situation where I get more than like one or two extra videos. Like most of the time, I hit the number like right on the number. Um And then sometimes it's like, very rarely, it's like one or at the very most two extra stories. Uh, I have eight extra stories today. There's literally no way I'm going to get to all of it, but that's okay because a lot of these stories are not time-constrained stories, so I'm going to, a bunch of them are just going to carry over into the next show. Uh, They're too good to let go, and they're also not time-constrained. So I'm going to do as many as I can today, um, but... I have content for days and days and days. This is really, uh, it was really incredible. I don't, I've never had that seamless of a prep session where it just, I just kept getting clonked over the head with amazing stuff. So um, needless to say, wall-to-wall stuff going on today. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a tease. So I'm going to, we have the YouTube CEO admitting something that none of the YouTube liaisons will admit when you talk to them one-on-one. Chris Christie made it in the show. Caitlyn Jenner made it in the show. Um, Got a bunch of stuff on Biden. I'll tell you what he's up to. I got a bunch of stuff on, well, not a bunch of stuff, but I have a story on a potential cure for depression and anxiety. You're not going to want to miss that. Um, We also have Republicans fully embracing cancel culture. 
because they want to ban certain performances from being on TV. Um, and I got much more. So without further ado, let's get started. And uh, we're going to do that with, we're going to talk about ContraPoints. ContraPoints is a lefty YouTuber. She has quite a following. Um, she makes some pretty amazing content. I don't watch her stuff religiously, but I've watched a, a decent amount of her stuff. And every time, you know, I'm, I'm taken, you know, taken aback by how uh, not only well-produced it is, but just well thought out. She's very thorough with uh, her viewpoints and breaking down stuff. And, you know, I can't recommend highly enough. She did a video on Jordan Peterson, for example, and just totally deconstructed everything about him and his ideology in a way that was astonishing, to be honest. Um, really, really into the weeds. So she's uh, super intellectual. She's part of what many call bread tube. I'm not sure if I, how much I fully embrace that label. And I'm also not sure if people would consider me necessarily a part of it. Uh, but anyway, um, she went on a little bit of a tweet storm yesterday that I think is really important and really amazing. So let me show you the first one here. She says, three years and four million views after upload. Today, YouTube has age-restricted my video incels. Age restriction significantly reduces a video's visibility, requiring viewers to be logged in and over 18 to watch and suppressing it in the recommendation algorithm. So I'll just give you some more here. Um, she continues and says, YouTube's community guidelines are supposed to make it clear to creators what content is allowed on the platform, but the guidelines are enforced very arbitrarily, actually worse than arbitrarily. Video restriction removal is often triggered by an easily abused flagging system. That's true, and that's something I've known but haven't talked about on the show yet. Randomly enforced restrictions are more restrictive than ones that are consistently enforced. If enforcement is consistent, you know what the rules are, and you can work around them, but arbitrary enforcement forces you into superstitious, neurotic self-censorship. You don't know what exactly you can get away with, so you start bleeping and blurring and omitting anything that could possibly be evocative of sex, drugs, violence, profanity, hate speech, or bullying. This is bad for art. Suppose you're a history YouTuber. Can you show images of Nazi Germany for educational purposes? Images often shown in school to people under 18? According to the community guidelines, yes. But in practice, such videos are often restricted or removed for hate speech. We've seen this a number of times. Suppose you're a feminist or sex educator. Can you say the words pornography, rape, clitoris? YouTube is often the only chance to educate teenagers about these topics before Pornhub does. But YouTube, but on YouTube, this kind of content is very often age restricted. Because most of my funding comes from Patreon, I'm in the fortunate position of not being financially relevant on the erratic whims of this broken system, so I can afford to take risks. But most creators aren't so lucky. Then she says, free speech should be reclaimed as an essential leftist issue. We should not surrender the most fundamental civil right to Google LLC in the name of deplatforming rightists and curtailing harassment. It's not worth the cost. Hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. And what you're seeing now is, a lot of people on the left really are starting to have that enlightenment moment because the way this was originally pitched to us, it was in a package that a lot of people found attractive. And the package was, 
oh my God, Alex Jones is so bad. Look at the stuff he's doing. We can't possibly tolerate him on the platform. Wouldn't it be great if we just totally banned him and deplatformed him and censored him and effectively gave him the internet death penalty? And a lot of people on the left were like, I fucking hate that guy. That guy's the worst. That guy's an abuser. That guy's an harasser. He's got to go. He's got to go. And so what people didn't realize is you just agreed to a principle that's going to destroy you and your own. People didn't realize it, but that's what's happening. Because this is the way censorship always works, is you start with people who are so extreme and so insane that there's going to be a lot of people who are sympathetic. A lot of reasonable people are going to say, I kind of get it. But then, again, what happens is now you just open the door. And that is the slipperiest, slippery slope of all time. And now there's no end to it. And so we've seen it time and time again. For every person who's on the right or some white supremacist or something who gets banned, there's another person on the left. High-profile examples recently is that there were a lot of uh, Antifa accounts, very large Antifa accounts on Twitter that were banned. You know, we saw this with Reddit, the, the Donald... Reddit was pulled down, but then so was the Chapo Trap House one. And so they're never going to stop. And people on the left who have seen these things in the past have been screaming at the top of their lungs that you can't agree in principle to the deplatforming and the censorship because we're ultimately the main targets over time. Because think about it. When you give powers to the censors, who are the censors? Who are the people who are going to determine what is and isn't allowed? I got news for you. It's nobody who has your politics. It's Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires like Mark Zuckerberg who get to determine what polite society is allowed to see. And I don't think he's a reasonable dude. Do you think he's a reasonable dude? I don't agree with his politics. Do you agree with his politics? But more importantly, what happens is it's the corporate media outlets, the traditional media outlets that end up winning the day because they're the ones who are viewed as the authoritative sources. So anything that's even vaguely, remotely political in nature that's edgy or an outsider opinion or an independent take, that's going to get pushed to the bottom. And those are the people who are going to suffer the consequences. If you're on the left, the whole point of being on the left is to question power and authority and say, hey, we, need, we could do this a different way. The way we're doing it now isn't working. But you just gave the ability to, to the people with all the power and all the authority to determine what's allowed to be shown. And so, of course, they're only going to pick the safest of the safe opinions that are right in line with whatever the establishment wants. And the fact of the matter is, you know it's a ruse because the establishment is always wrong about stuff. But there are going to be no consequences for that. None whatsoever. Are there going to be any consequences for the people who got Russiagate wrong from beginning to end and pushed in totally zero evidence conspiracy theory. No consequences for them. Are there going to be consequences for any of the people who push lies that end up getting us into wars? No, because you're lying on behalf of the establishment, so that's viewed as authoritative even if it's proven verifiably incorrect. So this is what you're agreeing to if you agree that we have a ministry of truth and censorship and deplatforming. Now, listen, is this me saying that, uh, you know, you're allowed to do direct threats of violence and dox people and things of that nature? Of course not. But listen, even with our First Amendment in this country and the Constitution, 
that doesn't mean you can do direct threats of violence. In fact, that's one of the few things that violates the First Amendment of freedom of speech. So should there be some sort of an open, transparent process wherein we can determine who is indeed threatening direct, doing direct threats of violence and there should be consequences for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you talk about something that directly violates any of the few rules against free speech, what should happen? I told you, there's arguments that maybe some of Alex Jones stuff when it came to the Sandy Hook massacre and his people started targeting the parents or whatever. First of all, go after the people who actually did the crime and targeted the parents. Second of all, if there's a video where he doxes one of those people or something, I'm not sure there is, by the way, but if there is one of those things, pull that specific video down after an open and transparent process where you prove, hey, this really does violate, you know, um, even our very lenient approach to free speech. This is, this is doxing. This is not allowed. Or this is a direct right of violence. This is not allowed. This is what you do. This is the kind of process that you have. But ultimately, the way that these things should function is they should be um, public utilities. Every big social media platform should be a public utility. So you have the expansion of First Amendment protections and free speech is there. Uh, And right now that's not the case. And you hear, unfortunately, a lot of people on the left now make the argument they're a private company that can do whatever they want. They want to ban whoever they want for whatever reason or non-reason, it's fine. Okay, well, now you're arguing like a right-wing libertarian if you make that argument. No, private companies can do what they want. Really? You don't say that when it comes to, you know, pollution and child labor and various other externalities. You don't say that. So why do you say it now? Well, just because sometimes they happen to like the target of the deplatforming and the censorship. Well, now you can see, and this is even, I'm sure Natalie would even admit this is kind of a light example, but it's real. Like this stuff is real. And who's to say now that when she uploads another video, because all her stuff, just like our stuff, is kind of edgy. So when she uploads another video, how does she know it's not immediately going to go into age-restricted mode? And I guarantee you this, she's definitely not on the normal algorithm that CNN, MSNBC, and the rest of them are on, just like me. I'm not on that algorithm either. And so I guarantee you her stuff, if they allowed it to be recommended to to new people at a normal clip, I guarantee you she'd be double as popular as she already is. She's phenomenally popular. Don't get it twisted. But I'm just saying, I'm sure she's hit a roadblock just like this show has and many other independent media outlets have. And uh, it's simply not fair. It's not just, and it's wrong in principle. So... She's right. Free speech originally was a left-wing issue because lefties understood we're the ones questioning power. So the power is going to try to censor us and deplatform us and get rid of us. So that's why we embrace this as a matter of principle, where even if somebody I massively disagree with says something, you've got to protect their rights because it is a right. And a right by definition is not something that you can just willy-nilly take away. You know, if we need, if we're allowing permits, you allow this overclass, this ministry of truth, to give you a permit to say this or that. Permit derives from the word permission, which is the opposite of a right. So we shouldn't treat this stuff like that. It's too important. It's too important. And this is the new public square. And so I think she hits the nail on the head here. Free speech really is an essential leftist issue. And I'll just say this. If you don't see it now, how important it is, you will in due time. Because I'm telling you, at some point, they run out of, like, the token, you know, extreme right-wingers to ban, where the lefties nominally like it and accept it and think it's great. At some point, you run out of those. And then it's just all lefties or people questioning 
authority, people with alternative views, people with interesting views. That's what's going to happen. Those are the people who are on the chopping block. And if you don't see it at this late date, I want to be kind to you, but I'm a little floored that you can't see it. But if you don't see it, again, I think you will see it because this, this isn't going to stop. This sort of creeping authoritarianism is not going to stop, and it's not going to end nicely. Now, here we go. Same topic, different video. This video that you're about to see is absolutely incredible. The CEO of YouTube went uh, on a show to be interviewed here. I'm not sure. Was it? Hold on one second, and I'll tell you. I think it's at the World Economic Forum that the Global Technology Governance Summit at the World Economic Forum. So she was uh, interviewed, and there were a variety of very interesting questions. I actually give a lot of credit to this interviewer for um, really discussing topics that are relevant to what's going on today. She's going to basically admit, the CEO of YouTube, like, yeah, we suppress independent news and politics because we feel like we have no choice and we have to do that. And um, this is incredible because this is something that YouTube liaisons, people who work for YouTube that talk to a lot of these independent creators, they will never admit it to your face, ever. They will never say, oh, there's multiple algorithms or your stuff is being suppressed or you know, we have a tier ranking system that allows certain things to get to new audiences and certain things not to. They will never admit that to you. But here you have the CEO of YouTube admitting it openly in an interview. So let's watch. It's a long video, but it's worth it every second. So pay close attention, and then we're going to come back and discuss it more. Not just kind of – how do you think about incentivizing – not just kind of run-of-the-mill, sugar, not bad, but like the really good stuff. Like what's the exact inverse of the violative content? First of all, it's really hard to say this is a content that is really you know, great. Um, I think you started talking about educational content. You implied with the Rubik's Cube that, that educational content had this higher premium. Um, I think educational content is incredibly important to YouTube and that everyone, uh, almost everyone, come to YouTube to learn something. In fact, we just had this IPSA study that said um, over 77% of people said they came to YouTube to learn something. And just anecdotally, everyone tells me how they fix something in their house. But uh, I, I think, you know, what you're bringing up is one of these challenges, is what is, what is, you know, what is considered good content. We do classify when it comes to information authoritative content. So if you're looking for COVID information, we actually can say, look, you know, the um, health organization, your local health authority, the CDC or whatever country you're in, or the World Health Organization, those are organizations that we can trust as opposed to some channel that just showed up that we don't have any kind of authoritative information about. So we definitely have a concept with information about authoritative um, sources, and we make sure that when people are looking for information that is sensitive, that we show those authoritative sources. But if you're in the entertainment area or you're looking how to fix something or how to learn something or an obscure topic, it's really hard to put some judgment about what is the best content that's out there. Tell me how you think about the evolution of the algorithm right now, where it is right now, 
What are the key things you're prioritizing and trying to fix? And what are the things you're worried about? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think we've come a long way in our algorithm. I mean, ultimately, we want to give information and suggest videos to our users that we think they're going to enjoy and want to see and related are to their interests. But there's a lot of caveats to that, too. So first of all, as I mentioned, when we deal with information, we want to make sure that the sources that we're recommending are authoritative, news, medical, science, et cetera. Um, and we also have created a category of more borderline content, where sometimes we'll see people looking at content that is um, or it will be content that's lower quality and borderline. And so we want to be careful about not over-recommending that. So that's a content that stays on the platform, but it's not something that we're going to recommend. And so our, our algorithms have definitely evolved in terms of handling all these different content types. I'd say the, the plus of that is that our users are able to see higher quality content. Uh, they're also able to uh, we're able to make sure that they're getting information from sources that are very reliable. But I would say the con of potentially some of these changes, because as you pointed out, every change has some downside, is it may be harder in some cases for channels maybe who are getting started or smaller to be able to be visible when there is a major event or when people are looking at something that is science or, or news-related. But you know, I would say that that's a trade-off that we've made because we've realized that it's really, really important. So, like, we learned this lesson the hard way. So when we had the Las Vegas shooting, you know, unfortunately, there were a lot of people who were you know, uploading content that was not factual, that was not correct, and it's much easier to just make up content and post it from your your basement than it is to actually go to the site and to be able to report and have high-quality journalistic reporting. And so that was just an example of, of what happens if you don't have that kind of ranking. So sure, we want to enable citizen journalism and other people to, up, to be able to report and other people to be able to share information and new channels, but when we're dealing with a sensitive topic, we have to have that information coming from authoritative sources so that the right and accurate information is viewed by our users first. Well, that's, that's not an easy trade-off. I mean, your name is YouTube. The whole principle is that you, anyone, can have complete free speech and you know, publish whatever they want. Or that was the founding principle. I would imagine that this is a trade-off that did not so it's yeah, it, it is. It, 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 I lost you on the last second there. Broke up a little bit, but you're right. Like we came from YouTube, and YouTube. When YouTube first started, it was much more entertainment. It was much more focused on creating uh, like interesting things that you saw, funny videos. Music has always been really big on YouTube. And you definitely want to be able to break the latest artists. And so that's something that we need to think about. So when there's a new, you know, we have so many artists who got started on YouTube. So when we have our next, uh, I don't know, some kind of, some famous artist like Shawn Mendes or Justin Bieber who got started on YouTube and they post their video, we want to be able to enable those new artists to break. But if you look at that, breaking artists or discovering the new latest uh, small musician is very different if you're looking for something like cancer information. You don't want to see someone who is just posting information for the first time when you're dealing with cancer. You want to see it from established uh, medical organization. And so we, what we've done is really fine-tune our algorithms to be able to make sure that we are 
instilled giving the new creators the ability to be found when it comes to music or humor or something funny, um, or you know, so many different categories, beauty, uh, I, I, I crafts, um, learning, how-to, right, all these different areas, but we're dealing with sensitive areas, we really need to take a different approach. There it is. There it is. So I'm punished, and all of my friends who are in independent news and politics are punished because some people out there pushed conspiracy theories about the Las Vegas shooting. Did I push them? No. Some people did, and now I'm punished as a result of it. I'm punished because some people push bogus cancer information or medical information. Have I pushed it? No. Have I said anything about COVID-19, for example? That's misinformation. Everything I've said and everything I believe on that is sourced from official medical outlets and experts. But I'm punished because some people are crazy. And every friend of mine who's in independent news and politics is punished because some people are crazy. This is astounding, what she just said. Let's go through some of the points. Um, the, the original question was, hey, what's the, what's the inverse of the violative content that like, you try to punish? And I can answer that question. I don't think the YouTube CEO did a great job of giving a straightforward answer there. The answer is very simple, the main YouTube page. The opposite of being pushed down in the algorithm is put your video on the main page, and then it blows up and it instantly gets you know, over a million views, millions of views. That's the opposite. The other thing is a video that really pops in the algorithm where it's just recommended to people a lot if they happen to be in the topic that you're covering, whether it's makeup tutorials or, or uh, news and politics or whatever it may be, um, a video that's rewarded is one that gets recommended a lot. And there's obviously giant differences between what videos get recommended and what videos don't get recommended. Some do, some don't. Um, so that's the answer to that question. Then she admits, listen, quote, we classify when it comes to information authoritative content. We classify when it comes to information authoritative content. Now, you might think, Hey, well, I mean, I don't know. That sounds kind of reasonable. You don't want misinformation spreading everywhere. But, again, the whole point of YouTube was we're this free and open platform, and anybody can post about anything, and it's kind of like a meritocracy. Your video might take off and do well, and if it does, credit to you. Now, I get it. It's a difficult thing. There's a lot of people out there that say crazy things, believe crazy things, and, um, you know, you don't want to create some widespread belief that's detrimental to public health or whatever as a result of some asshole getting something wrong. But who's going to watch the watchmen? I mean, that's the most important point, right? So when you say we classify when it comes to information, authoritative content, why isn't a better solution to do one of the things that they're already doing, by the way, which is just put a little link underneath one of the videos to whatever you deem as the most authoritative content. Now, by the way, YouTube isn't always going to get it right because nobody is a ministry of truth, and nobody is objectively correct about everything. Everything, revolves, everything involves, you know, judgment calls. So I'm not saying they're going to get it right all the time. But if you wanted to do something that's, like, fair, that's fair, and doesn't punish people who don't deserve to be punished, then you just put links underneath the videos. Like, every time you say something about COVID-19 right underneath, it's like, here's a link to the CDC and the FDA and whatever, and this is what they say about COVID. Now, by the way, it was Fauci, the head of science and medicine in our government who was like, yeah, masks don't work. He said that, what, a year ago, year and a half ago or some shit? 
Now, is he going to be punished as a result of that? Do you have a warning on a Fauci video? Will you pull down a Fauci video? Will you not recommend the Fauci videos in the algorithm as a result of what he said? No. See, they get a pass because you've just deemed them as official sources. Whereas if some schmuck said masks don't work, they would be pushed down the algorithm or banned or their video would be pulled or there'd be some sort of warning on it or there'd be some age restriction or whatever. So you're never going to have a ministry of truth that's accurate. But even if I grant you that this is a problem and you need to do something about it, just put the links under the videos and that's it. Instead, what they do is create this massive headache, this massive bureaucracy. They do subjective judgments, and they punish people who shouldn't be punished. Then, then she admits, she says, and I've known this for a long time. She says, entertainment and obscure topics basically get a pass. So you understand that? There are no rankings for entertainment or obscure topics because, hey, it's subjective. It's, you know, you might like one thing. This guy might like another thing. There's a difference between chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream. If you're watching content on whatever it may be some sport that you love or, you know, some artist or whatever, some singer, they say, well, you know, there are no things that are just factually correct and factually incorrect about these things. So we just sort of let it, let it go. And I've seen that with my own two eyes. Channels that are obviously not nearly as popular as this channel in other topics, just zooming by me in every metric, subs, views, etc. And it's because the algorithm doesn't crush them, whereas the algorithm crushes us. Then she says, again, she's screaming it through a megaphone. It's kind of amazing. Quote, we've created a category of more borderline content. We want to be careful about not over-recommending that. There it is. That's exactly what have I been telling you. The main way that they punish this channel is to have some sort of official ranking behind the scenes as, oh, Kyle's borderline content. And so what does that mean? There's a reason why the sub-growth on this channel has ground to a halt, almost a total halt. Why? Because back in the day, if you're watching news and politics anywhere on YouTube, you might get recommended a secular talk video. You could be watching CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or some other independent creator, or whatever video you want in the, politic, in the, in the topic of news and politics, and you might get recommended a secular talk video. So my stuff would be recommended all over the place, because we do a lot of content, it gets a decent number of views, and there's a meritocracy type thing where that is rewarded in and of itself. And so I was growing at 30,000, 40,000 subs a month. Now we gain like 1,000 subs a month. Think about that. Gaining 30,000 or 40,000 subs a month. That was back in the 2016 election in that time frame. Now gaining 1,000 or 2,000 subs a month? How is it imploded like that? And the answer is very simple. They just try not to recommend secular talk videos to any new audiences. So if you're a fan of secular talk and you already watch secular talk, you might get recommended videos every now and then. But if somebody has never heard of me, they're not going to hear about me because we don't get recommended to new audiences. So, I mean, this is incredibly punitive and this is completely unfair. It's completely unfair. Um, And, you know, I obviously would contest the idea that I'm borderline content. I know some people find me controversial or edgy. I don't think I'm that controversial or edgy. You know what I stand for? I I like to discuss the news. I like to discuss politics. And so a lot of the stuff I give is just stories I've read, data and information and facts. But beyond that, my personal opinions are not hard to determine. I want everybody to have health care. I want everybody to have college. I want everybody to have higher wages. I want to end the wars. These are the things I believe in. YouTube is punishing me for believing in these things. Or they're punishing me because my delivery 
seems like, you know, that guy screams sometimes and yells sometimes and gets animated. So he seems like he's a little unhinged, might not want to recommend his stuff. I'm being punished. And all the other independent news and politics creators you know are being punished. She says, quote, people are able to see higher quality content and get information from sources that are reliable. So what that means is on news and politics, now we're pumping out the authoritative content, which means what? You're going to get spoon-fed CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. And by the way, you know who they spoon-feed to people who like alternative media? You know this because it's happened to you a million times, I'm sure. You know who they spoon-feed you? John Oliver. Because they say, oh, he's sort of alternative and edgy, even though he's on HBO. Let's, people who watch Kyle Kalinske or other left YouTubers, let's give them John Oliver. So if you put on the, you know, the thing where it autoplays to the next video, oftentimes they go right to John Oliver. Or like The Daily Show, right? So they'll, they try to keep it somewhat reasonable where they're like, well, don't give them more secular talk. Give them, give them like John Oliver, because that's edgy and outsider-ish, right? This is what they do. So that's what they consider high-quality content things that are established, things that are from corporate media. Now, of course, they would have zero answer to the rebuttal on that point, which is what? Those outlets get stuff wrong all the time. For fuck's sake, Brian Williams talked about the beauty of our weapons on the air as we were launching an airstrike against Syria. That could be knocked for promoting violence. You know, you have so many things, conspiracies pushed by mainstream media, like when they push for the illegal Iraq war that was based on lies, where they were just citing, you know, uh, the intelligence agencies, and they had no evidence, but they did the propaganda pushing us into war. So they've gotten us in illegal wars. They've done conspiracy theories like Russiagate, which buckets came of it. There was no, Mueller didn't get anything regarding Russia and Trump. So these guys can push whatever conspiracy theories they want, and not only are they not punished, they're rewarded because they're lying in the way that's socially acceptable and in a way that the establishment and polite society accepts. Whereas I could be right about everything, but I would still be docked and knocked in the algorithm as borderline content. It is deeply, deeply, deeply unfair. And again, she's just admitting it all right here. She's admitting all this. I would put my record of predictions up against anything any of the mainstream media outlets have said, and I would do much better, but they don't care. They don't care. And then, again, huge admission, huge admission. She says, it's harder for channels that are getting started to be visible in, in the areas that pump out authoritative content and push down borderline content. So, in other words, if you're starting some sort of news and politics channel now, good luck to you. Because she's saying, as a direct result of our policies and our algorithm, it's harder for you to break through because we don't trust you, we don't like you, your very existence uh, makes advertisers skittish, and so therefore we're going to side with the advertisers and we're just going to pump out the narrative that the establishment wants and pump out the corporate media outlets. They're admitting it. They're admitting it all right here. And then, you know, you get the, the line which everybody's talking about now, quote, it's easy to just make up content from your basement. She says that as a put down. That was the whole point of YouTube. YouTube. You. Tube, YouTube, not elite tube, not top 1% tube. I mean, what has happened to YouTube is people went to YouTube to sort of escape the mainstream nonsense that they see on cable news and on TV. And now YouTube just wants to become cable news and TV. 
It's a fundamentally different thing. People are coming here to escape that, and you're going to force feed them the stuff they're escaping, like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. Imagine putting down people making content from their basement when all of YouTube's success is people making content from their basement or their living room or their kitchen or whatever. It's really amazing, man. It really is. It really is. At the very least, if you're going to crush borderline news and pump out authoritative news, at least use a scalpel and not a hatchet. And what they do now is use a hatchet. And they will punish people like Jordan Chardon, for example, and act like he's pushing the Stop the Steal conspiracy when his videos are debunking the Stop the Steal conspiracy. And he was on the ground at the attempted insurrection on January 6th, and he got live stream footage of all of it. So much so, mainstream media outlets licensed the footage from him so they could play it, but it gets pulled down on YouTube on Jordan's channel, but not on the CNN channel and not on the mainstream media channel. Think about that. Think about how backwards and destructive and unfair the system is when the same footage is promoted on mainstream media outlets and pulled down from the independent person who recorded it in the first place. And his channel has been beyond destroyed. This is unacceptable, guys. It's totally unacceptable. And then the, the final nail in the coffin of the admission here is when, when she says, quote, when YouTube first started, it was much more entertainment, funny videos, and music. So that's her saying, that's all we ever wanted it to be. Man, it's a giant headache that any independent and alternative news and politics outlets popped up. All they are is a thorn in our side, is a pain in our ass. We don't want them. They scare the advertisers. We want to side with the advertisers. We want as much money as possible from the advertisers. So what are we going to do? We're just going to take the easy way out. We're going to basically destroy all the borderline content, push them down in the algorithm, strangle them out of existence, which is going to happen to a lot of these channels, by the way. And we're going to force feed people the same garbage that they see on TV because that's the easy way out. We don't have to think about it. We'll get pats on the head from the establishment media. They won't run any more scare pieces because now they're getting rewarded. And really, the idea is just make it TV for certain topics. And on other topics, fine. We'll let you, we'll let you have freedom and a fair algorithm for stuff like entertainment, funny videos, and music. That'll be a meritocracy. News and politics and everything else will be anything but a meritocracy because there's a lot of bad people out there that push conspiracy theories regarding the Las Vegas shooting and cancer. Therefore, Kyle needs to be destroyed and every other independent new media outlet needs to be destroyed. This is insane. I was, you know, I was concerned about this previously, especially when Adpocalypse hit was when it was the worst. And you guys came in and saved the day with Patreon. Um, we lost all of our funding overnight with Adpocalypse. Thankfully, we got some of that funding back. But it's never been the same since then, ever. Never, ever been the same. But I was always a little bit worried about how YouTube can treat us, because at any moment they could pull the rug out from underneath us. I've never been more worried than right now, because I've never seen such an amazing impact on the channel until right now. Guys, the best example I could give is this. Crystal Ball, my co-host for Crystal Kyle and Friends, she also does the show Rising on Hill TV. Um, if you talk to her, she says, we credit a lot of our success, a lot of our growth, a lot of the spark we needed to become relevant to the fact that she would invite on all the independent left-wing media personalities, including me. So they credit, Sagar and Crystal credit, the strength and power and the numbers of our channel and our listeners, you guys, to their success. Now you go look at the numbers on the Hill, on Rising, and you compare them to the numbers on Secular Talk. They 
sped by me at a million miles an hour in subgrowth, and they've now sped by me at a million miles an hour in views. When she'll post a video, and every now and then a video will get over a million views. And why is that? She, they do phenomenal work. Don't get it twisted. I'm not at all besmirching their work. They're great. Obviously, I do a show with Crystal. I think she's one of the best in the field, one of the best in the business. But they also don't get strangled by the algorithm. So a video of theirs could take off and get over a million views. Easy. They surpassed me in subs incredibly quickly. Now they've surpassed me in views incredibly quickly. And the whole reason is that The Hill is a corporation. It's on the better algorithm, and so their stuff spreads far and wide. Whereas me, total grind to a halt for subs, total grind to a halt for views. I can't, you know, it's an absolute miracle if a video of mine gets over 200,000 views. It's a miracle if that happens. It's a miracle. And again, the reason is not because the content's worse than it used to be or it's not good or we don't have people like the show. It's because none of it gets spread to new people. So listen, I'll, I'll put it out there as simple and plain as possible. If you like this show, I never ask for this stuff, but I feel like I have to now because they really are strangling us. If you like this show, do me a favor and subscribe. There are plenty of people who watch who don't subscribe. Do me a favor and subscribe. Do me a favor and like every video. Or not, if you dislike it, hit the dislike button. Just engage, right? So do that. Comment on the videos. Not only subscribe, but also click the bell so you get a notification every time a video drops because that's huge too. Um, and really just spread this stuff far and wide, man. Share it with people. Share it with new people. Talk to people about it. Do whatever you can. Because even with all that, even if everybody does exactly what I'm saying, we're still not going to make up for the fact that the algorithm hates us. We're just not. It's not going to happen. But at least it will soften the blow a little bit. And, of course, if you uh, like the content and support the content, then you could either go to Patreon and give a small monthly donation, two bucks a month, whatever it may be, Anything is appreciated, and I love you dearly if you help out. You know, I know you guys work hard for your money, and it's not easy times out there. I get it. So if you can't do it, I understand. No problem. But if you can do it, just donate a couple bucks a month or whatever it is, and that helps massively on Patreon. Link is in the video description box below. Or you can um, go to Substack, again, link below, and subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends for the video, which is $5 per month. And I highly recommend that. The videos are amazing. Again, if you can't do it, you don't have the money, I understand. Um, you can still get every podcast for free, but it's the audio version and it drops a day later. But uh, it would be really appreciated if you guys sub on, on Substack for $5 a month and you get the video. I mean, you want to know the most embarrassing thing maybe ever? Crystal and I, in politics, we're in the top like 20 in, in news and politics on Substack, which is good. But you know who's ahead of us? Barry Weiss is beating Crystal Kyle and friends on Substack. I've never been more embarrassed in my life than to admit that fact. I care so deeply about getting in front of Barry Weiss. And a lot of people who are in front of us are people who are not as popular. And it sort of tears me up a little bit inside. So if you guys could become, you know, subscribers, members, Crystal Kyle and friends, pay that $5 a month and get the videos the day early, I'd really appreciate it because at the very least, I want to surpass Barry White. If I can't pass Barry White, I'm totally useless. So anyway, um, this story really breaks my heart because it's so, everything we suspected, everything we knew to some extent, now we know it beyond any reasonable doubt, you know? And the only upside of it is like, I can now 
really fully, truly understand in my bones that it ain't me. It really is the YouTube algorithm is holding us back. And um, it's a painful reality. They really need to change it. Guys, send this video, please, to uh, the, the YouTube creator's uh, Twitter account. I, fuck, I wish I had it with me. I would have told you guys right now what the name of the account is. There's an account that's specifically for the creators and feedback from the creators. Please send this to, the, to that account. If, if I can find it, I'll put it just on the screen right now. Send this video to that account and send it to the CEO of YouTube because I really think this is unfair and they really need to change it. And these policies are just totally destroying channels that shouldn't be destroyed. Should I really be punished because I believe in ending wars and giving people healthcare and giving people free college and giving people higher wages? Should I really be punished because I talk in a more aggressive and edgy and entertaining way? I don't think it's fair. I think it needs to change. So try to help out however you can. Okay. All right. Now we're going to talk about Caitlyn Jenner. She's running for governor. Played it too quickly. Here we go. Caitlyn Jenner is officially now going to run for governor of California. Take a look. It is now official. Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor of California. Jenner is, of course, a former Olympic decathlete, one of the stars of Keep It Up with the Kardashians. Christina Coleman has the story from L.A. today. Good morning, Christina. Hi, good morning, Bill. Reality star and former Olympian Caitlyn Jenner is throwing her hat in the ring for governor of California. She just announced she has filed initial paperwork to run for office. And in just the last hour, she tweeted, I'm in. California is worth fighting for. She then directs her 3.5 million followers to her campaign website, Caitlyn for California. It doesn't list off any of her policy positions, but they're already selling merchandise from California wine glasses to bumper stickers. She also just released a statement stating why she wants to run. It says in part, for the past decade, we have seen the glimmer of the Golden State reduced by one-party rule that places politics over progress and special interest over people. Sacramento needs an honest leader with a clear vision. And there's definitely going to be a lot more vision and eyes on this effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom with Caitlyn Jenner announcing her bid for office. Her supporters believe her celebrity status will definitely help. Jenner publicly showed support for Trump before. She's a longtime Republican and a transgender rights activist in this deep blue state. Axios reports that a campaign advisor says that Jenner is running as someone that's socially liberal and a fiscally conservative person. In her announcement today, she already slammed California's COVID lockdowns, calling them over-restrictive. She also criticized the state's taxes, saying they're way too high, killing jobs and hurting families. Now, as for the recall election, it's not official yet, but everyone in California expects it to happen. You're going to get a lot of attention on this. Thanks, Christina. Nice to see you in L.A. today. This is hilarious, and I'm really interested to see how Republicans react to this, especially if she sort of leans into pro-Trump stuff, 
So apparently she was very pro-Trump until Trump um, came out against trans people in the military, and then she turned on Trump and was really mad at him and sort of abandoned him. Um, but if she starts leaning now into more pro-Trump themes, I wonder if Republicans in California are going to be like, I agree with her, man. What am I going to do? Like, I got to go vote for her. I, I mean, it would be, that'd be hilarious. Um, her chances of winning are 0.001%. There's just, I mean, I, I mean, I guess there's an argument she's only doing it as a publicity stunt. And maybe she's recording some sort of TV show that they'll release about this, which will get her more money, more fame, so on and so forth. Um, because I, it's hard to imagine that she thinks she really has a chance. It's really hard to imagine that. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger won the governorship in California. If she thinks she's going to repeat that, I think she's got another thing coming. So they said there, oh, she's going to run as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, except she is actually not very socially liberal. She very famously came out against gay marriage. When she was already trans, she came out against gay marriage. She said, I'm a very traditional woman. Isn't that amazing? Talk about the exact opposite of solidarity with the LGBTQ community. It is just, that is astonishing, son. Um, So what's interesting is, so there were some trans rights groups that already came out and said, we don't want her to be governor, we're against her. And I actually, I like that a lot because what it shows is something we argue all the time on this show, which is that values override identity 100% of the time for everybody. And so whenever people pretend to prioritize identity more, it's just, a, it's just a gross trick. They don't really mean it. They don't really believe it. They're using identity as, you know, a way to deflect from other issues and sort of divert your attention. So I was actually very happy that a lot of trans rights groups were like, yeah, we want a trans governor. We want, you know, trans people elected, but not her because we don't agree with her politics. That's right. That's good. Um, so, but the... The two most important points here, two most important points. Number one is, they they said it right there. She says, I'm going to run for governor. She doesn't list any of her policy positions. Right there, I automatically lose, I lose all respect for you. Because the whole point of being governor is like, here's what I believe in, here's what I want to change. And to have like a list of priorities that's very clear cut. And you can even show what, what do you prioritize more? What's your number one issue? So on and so forth. I mean, that's, Even if I disagree with you, but you run for office and it's clear you're running on the issues, at least, at least I get it. And at least I see, oh, you understand what the job is. But if you say I'm going to run for any office and you don't release your policy, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Why should anybody vote for you ever? Hey, I'm not going to tell you what I believe, but you should vote for me. Well, why would I vote for you if the whole point of me voting is supposed to be Let me vote for people who have the same vision I have and want the same society I want and want the same policies I want. I mean, honestly, it's just, it is the most openly and ridiculously narcissistic thing I've ever seen. I'm going to run for governor, but I'm not going to tell you what I believe about anything yet, but vote for me and support me. Imagine like asking for donations, running for office, and you're like, oh, I'm not going to tell you what I believe in. What? That's one of the most important points. The most important point, though, is, guys, Caitlyn Jenner killed somebody. She killed somebody with her car and got away with it. She killed somebody with her car and got away with it. And 
not only is she acting like it didn't happen, she's being egregious about it and now trying to run for governor as if she doesn't have this incredibly terrible thing in her past. Listen, I don't care if you're trans. I would support a trans person who believes in the policies I believe in. Of course, instantly, no questions asked. But you killed somebody and there were no consequences for it. That alone makes me sour on you. You did one of the things that is the worst possible thing you could do. And you're acting like you didn't and there were no consequences for it. And that just, that's insufferable. And what that tells me is, you know, money and power, you get away with stuff because of money and power. And so she's incredibly entitled and doesn't realize it or doesn't acknowledge it. And um, that disconnection from reality pisses me off more than anything else. So here we go. We'll see what ends up happening, but American politics, even though it was already phenomenally weird with the reality star guy becoming president, somehow got even weirder. Next. So we may have the first Republican presidential candidate for 2024 jumping in the race. Take a look. New, Chris Christie is seriously considering running for president in 2024. Three people familiar with his thinking tell Axios. Um, so following politics as long as I followed it, I can decode that for you from politician speak. That means, yes, I'm going to run for president. That is what I'm planning on doing. If he doesn't end up running, it's because his mind was changed by something. So, but right now, this means, yeah, he's going to run. And he's already starting the work behind the scenes to get the infrastructure built up and whatnot. That's what's going on here. So there you have it. Likely the first Republican primary presidential candidate is Chris Christie for 2024. Now, what are his chances? I mean, that's an interesting question to ask because he sort of got absolutely obliterated the last time he ran. And really it's like yes and no. So He did get obliterated, but also what people forget is towards the end of his campaign, he had cut a deal with Trump, and he basically acted as Trump's attack dog. And so I don't know if you guys remember, but he obliterated Marco Rubio in a back and forth in a way that was legendary that I think we covered at the time and I've enjoyed many times since. And I think what he learned from that experience is this very simple thing. Oh, I need to not be overcoached. I need to not listen to my consultants and my strategists, and I need to just let it fly. Because if Trump showed anything, it's that Republican primary voters respect balls. Republican primary voters want somebody who's going to be like, I don't care what mainstream media says. I don't care what polite society says. I have no filter. I shoot from the hip, and I'm aggressive. That's what Trump showed. So Chris Christie, his natural setting, his natural personality is that. Now, the guy's a massive asshole, and I disagree with him about almost everything. But his default setting is, hey, I'm the New Jersey tough guy. I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a straight shooter over here. And I think he learned that lesson in the final days of the campaign in 2016. So here's what he would have to do to be relevant and to have any prayer at all. He would, of course, he would need Trump to not run, because if Trump runs everybody's wasting their time. He's going to win the primary or, you know, I'll give him a 70% chance of winning the primary, even if there are 10 other candidates. 
He could lose, but it's very likely he's going to win. Um, so Trump needs to not run. And then what Christie would have to do is wholly embrace Trumpism, wholly embrace Trumpism, and then out-obnoxious every other Republican on stage. And then he could win. So all the stuff in the past that, you know, the right has disliked him for, or whatever, all the little scandals, hugging Obama or whatever after Hurricane Sandy, that's all, that's so long ago, it's water under the bridge. Even the Republicans will, you know, hardly anybody will even bring it up, I think. But if he fully embraces Trumpism and Trump and is more obnoxious than everybody else on stage and Trump's not running, then he does have a chance, for sure. Um, Because it's not unheard of on the right or the left, that somebody runs for president, gets obliterated, and then at some point in the future runs again and wins. That's happened before. So um, I don't know, man. We'll see. But in, on actual substance, Chris Christie's abysmal. I remember he was viciously, fiercely arguing for war, for escalation with Russia, for every wrong policy you can imagine on tax cuts and deregulation. So he's terrible on the actual substance. But the lane that he has is, Step one, Trump doesn't run. Step two, fully embrace Trump. Step three, be super obnoxious and out-obnoxious all the other people on stage, which is sort of his default setting, so he has an advantage in that sense. But there you have it. Looks like the big guy wants to run. We have some news on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was paused. It appears like, uh, as predicted, they've reversed that. Take a look. This has huge implications for the fight against the pandemic that the J&J vaccine will now be made available here in the United States. Absolutely, Walt. This vaccine is key to the rollout because it's one shot and it does not require ultra-cold storage. Now, this committee debated, heard presentations for nearly six hours. The only real point of contention was whether to say that women under 50 could be given the option of a different vaccine. They decided against that, saying that it was perhaps confusing or maybe impractical. The final vote was 10 votes in favor, four against, and one abstention. Looks like Johnson & Johnson's vaccine will soon be back in the game with a new warning label and patient instructions We recognize that there is a very rare but important and serious risk. As of Wednesday, just 15 cases of a rare clotting syndrome confirmed among the nearly 8 million people given the J&J vaccine, all in women, most between the ages of 18 and 39. There were three deaths, um, seven remain hospitalized for an intensive care. One major benefit of this poll is the time to educate physicians on how to spot and treat clots. I now have a different set of things to look for than I would have two weeks ago. It also changes how I treat clots if I find them. These very rare clots are treatable. Early presentation by education of public and physicians will improve outcomes. The CDC director and the FDA still need to sign off on redeploying this vaccine. I think the FDA and I both um, feel strongly, and the CDC feel strongly, that uh, we need to act swiftly. Because it's a great arrow to have in the COVID-quelling quiver. That may be uniquely good, and in some cases really the only practical option for some people. And a 
longer polls might further fuel vaccine hesitancy. Some big names now on board to fight such fear. It's something to be proud of, and I think as a, as a nation, we are so close to being through this that I'm just trying to help get us there because we got to get back on the road. The average pace of vaccination just dipped back below 3 million shots a day for the first time in a couple of weeks. While we know the next phase of the vaccination program will involve improving access, increasing confidence, ensuring equity, it won't be easy. But neither was getting to 200 million shots in arms in less than 100 days. So they brought the vaccine back. Uh, Again, just to put in perspective what we're dealing with here, uh, the original report is that there were a total of six people out of about 7 million Johnson & Johnson shots that were given who developed a rare kind of blood clot. One of them died. Um, That would be about a one in a million chance of developing blood clots, and it was all in women aged 18 to 48. And um, birth control has a one in 10,000 chance of blood clot. So you have one in a million versus one in 10,000. The one in 10,000 drug was allowed. The one in a million was not. That doesn't really make sense. Now, by the way, we've since gotten more information. Part of the freezing of the J&J vaccine was actually search for more cases to see how widespread this really is. In all of their searches, they found a total of 15 people, again, all women who suffered from the blood clot issue, which means instead of a one in a million chance, it's about one in 500,000 that you develop a rare kind of blood clot from this vaccine. So again, birth control, legal, one in 10,000 chance, Johnson Johnson vaccine, one in 500,000 chance. So in my opinion, I think that the FDA and the CDC made the right call to resume it. Um, Now, the, there, there is an upside of them. There are actually two giant upsides of the freeze of, of it. So one of it is, one of them is they froze it to let doctors know that if you see blood clots in this particular age group, and then you inquire if they took the vaccine and they did, don't treat those blood clots with heparin because the normal treatment for blood clots is heparin. But for these particular kinds of blood clots, heparin makes it worse. So that was one of the reasons they gave for freezing it, basically to get more information out there to doctors across the country. Hey, if you see this, don't do the standard treatment. There's another way to treat it, and the other way you treat it works. But it was just, it was a way to educate the entire country, the doctors all throughout the country, this is what you need to do. So their reasoning was it could save lives in that way. And the other positive thing that came out of it is they put a warning label on it. And I'm totally fine with the warning label, even if the chances are really, really small. Um, you know, information is key. Information is power. And so I'm not, in fav- I'm not in favor of, like, hiding information. You should give people as much information as possible and let them make up their own mind. So I'm totally fine with the warning. Now, so those were the upsides of freezing it. The downside is this, and this is a big downside. I'm not, let's not sugarcoat it. Now 54% of the public says, say they don't want this vaccine. More than half of the public now says, I don't want that one. Well, if that's the only option, and it is in many places, then, then it starts to look like freezing the vaccine was a bad idea because it had the opposite of the intended effect. The intended effect, as described by Fauci, was like, this is to show people we prioritize safety above all else, and it's going to give people confidence in the system because if flash when we resume it, they'll know, oh, they looked at all the evidence and they came to the proper decision. 
Turns out the opposite's the case. Just the fact that you froze it actually feeds more of the hardcore anti-vaccine conspiracies, and it had the opposite effect. We're now 54% of the country says they don't want this particular vaccine. So that's definitely not good, man. Now, I had this vaccine. I really had no issues. Oh, by the way, I should mention this. They say um, if you took this vaccine and like a week or two weeks after you have severe headaches, go to the doctor because then it could be the blood clot. If you have a headache the day after the vaccine, don't panic. That's very common. In fact, that's what I had. I didn't have many symptoms when I got the vaccine. All I had was a little bit of a headache that lasted three or four hours. And uh, my, I was a little warm. I was a little, like, fevery. Uh, but, again, after three or four hours, that went away. Those were all my symptoms. Um, but if you have the headache a week or two after getting the vaccine, then, and it's severe, then, you know, you, you should go see a doctor. Um, but... The other thing is the benefit of this vaccine is that it's a one-shot vaccine. And for a lot of people who live in rural areas, did I say that word correctly? I struggle with it all the time, as the longtime viewers of the show know. People who live in rural areas, um, this is much easier for them because it's a lot harder for some people to get two appointments and to really follow up on it and be on top of it. So it's much better for them, for people in like hard-to-reach areas. And the other thing is it can be stored at relatively normal temperatures, whereas the mRNA vaccines need to be stored in super freezing cold temperatures. So it's a really important tool in the arsenal in the fight against COVID. And the final point I'll leave you guys with is this, because I think this says everything, I really do. If you crunch the numbers on the likelihood of getting a blood clot from this vaccine, and you compare that to if you don't get vaccinated, the likelihood you get COVID and then die from COVID, or we'll get even more specific. The likelihood you get COVID and die from a blood clot that's from COVID, you're way more likely to die from a blood clot that came about from COVID than you are to die from a blood clot from the vaccine. So even if your main concern is like blood clots are the main thing, and that's why no, never for this one. By not taking it, your risk of blood clots are actually more because it's more likely you'll get COVID, and then it's also possible because some of the side effects of COVID for some people are blood clots. It's likely that you die from a blood clot from COVID more so than it is that you die from a blood clot from the vaccine. So I really do think that says everything. I really do. And uh, granted, I'm totally biased here because of the vaccine I got. I got the bad boy vaccine, everybody. So, you know, fits right in line with my brand of a particular kind of edginess. Uh, Just kidding. But yeah, I got the vaccine. So I'm a little biased, but I do think that the right decision was to bring it back. Um, and I think it was debatable whether or not you freeze it in the first place. But I do think the warning is good. And I do think now that all the doctors around the country know what to look for, I do think that's good. All right, let me do one more and then we'll take a quick break. Kirsten Cinema was at a Chamber of Commerce event for Arizona. And... Um, you know, this is one of the things she doesn't think the general public is going to see it. So she's a little bit too honest with her real bosses, the donors, the special interests, the business interests. Uh, so here she is saying the quiet part loud. There is some concern right now in the business community, as you've probably heard, uh, an issue that our friends at the Arizona chapter of the Associated General Contractors wanted me to bring up with you, that uh, there's a bill that passed the House, the PRO Act, uh, Give us a sense, as this bill makes its way to the Senate, were you 
uh, intend to be on this. We know it's an evolving issue. And if you'd be willing to have a, a discussion with employers in Arizona about our concerns about this bill being a disruption to the workplace and to our business environment. Well, I would welcome such discussion. As folks are listening today know, the way I make decisions on behalf of Arizona and for our constituents is by listening to the business leaders who will be impacted by these decisions. So I want to discuss this legislation, and I want to know the impact it would have on Arizona jobs and the economy. Now, there hasn't been any movement on the PRO Act yet in the United States Senate, but I can tell you that many Arizona businesses have already reached out to my office, and I know have discussed the concerns that they have with the PRO Act with some of the folks who are on our call today. When she makes decisions, she prioritizes Arizona business leaders. Said it herself. Said it herself. That's one of those things that if we said first and she heard that we said it, she'd be like, that's not fair. That's an unfair attack. That's not true. But when she's in company of the people who really are her bosses, this is what she says. Yeah, I prioritize the Arizona business leaders. Why should you prioritize Arizona business leaders more than an unemployed Arizona grandma or a worker at one of those Arizona businesses? Why should you do that? You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that at all. In fact, the needs and wants of the Arizona business community, that's a narrow slice of your constituency. And in many ways, what they want is at odds with the majority of people in Arizona. But she's admitting, I side with the businesses, business owners, over the workers, over the people. And so what they're talking about there is the PRO Act. The PRO Act is a phenomenal piece of pro-union legislation. It does a number of things that are great for workers. Probably one of the most important things it does is it effectively bans right to work. And right to work states are really right to work for less. Um, And so that would, on its own, raise wages and give people better benefits. And so this would be a very transformative piece of legislation for workers in America. And um, so naturally, you have business interests organizing against it. And you heard what Kirsten Sinema said there. I've been getting phone calls from Arizona business leaders, and they've been telling me that they're against it. We need to, at the very least, do the equal and opposite organizing. So workers in Arizona should be calling her and saying, I'm for the PRO Act. You better support the PRO Act or I'm going to vote against you. But the, the really sad part is this. Even if she got a zillion phone calls that made that exact point, and she should, by the way, but even if she did, it's still very likely that she'll side with the business community because she just told you these are her bosses. And by the way, the reason they're her bosses are incredibly nefarious. The reason is corruption because when she runs her campaigns, who does she take money from? The business leaders, the corporations. This is who she takes money from. So she views them as more important and the people who she really represents. And it's so, we're at a point now where the system is so broken, I don't think she even thinks this is corruption. I don't think she even thinks this is legal bribery. I think she thinks this is the way politics works. It's that simple. Like, this is the way it functions. You tell me to change the game, I can't change the game. The game is what it is. It's set in stone. There's no evolving this or changing this or regulating this or transforming this or reforming this. There's none of that. So this is where we are with people like Kirsten Cinema. She views it as a duh to be corrupt. You know, and it's 
It's really frustrating. Really, the most powerful people in the country right now, you could argue it's either Joe Biden or Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, because those are the most conservative Democrats, and they have the potential and the ability to block absolutely anything and to fundamentally change the nature of otherwise good pieces of legislation. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, I think, to be fair to Manchin, I actually think he signed on to the PRO Act, but he has more union representation than Kirsten Sinema does, because there's a rich labor history in West Virginia uh, of unions. But it's also possible that the reason why Manchin is supporting it is because he knows that Mark Kelly and Cinema are going to be against it, and he also knows they're not going to do anything with the filibuster, which would mean they need 60 votes to get it passed. So Manchin might know there's zero chance this gets passed, therefore I could pretend to be in favor of it and get the brownie points from that. So, but I, I don't know for sure on that. That's more speculation. But what I do know is everything Kirsten Cinema says here is gross, and it's exactly the way politics really functions, and nobody should tolerate this. Nobody should accept this. What we really should do is overwhelm her office with workers saying, I support the PRO Act, and if you don't support the PRO Act, we want to primary you and we want to get you out, and um, that's the end of the story. So the worst, one of the worst, she always has been since she's been elected, and she probably always will be. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Biden recognizes the Armenian genocide. Stay right there, guys. We will be right back.
are back, bitch. We are back, bitch. Okay. Let's go with uh, the green color behind us for this next segment. Changing my LED lights. Changing my LED lights. Changing my LED lights. All right, we're going to talk about Joe Biden. We got a bunch of Biden stories that I'm going to run through. All right, here we go. Let's do the damn thing. Joe Biden uh, caused quite a stir with what he did the other day. Take a look at this from NPR. President Biden on Saturday declared the mass slaughter of Armenians at the hands of Ottoman Turks more than a century ago a genocide bucking pressure from Turkey's government as well as decades of precedent to describe the atrocity as one that was ethnically motivated. Quote, each year on this day, we remember the lives of all those who died in the Ottoman era Armenian genocide and recommit ourselves to preventing such an atrocity from ever again occurring, Biden said in a statement. Let us renew our shared resolve to prevent future atrocities from occurring anywhere in the world, the president said, and let us pursue healing and reconciliation for all the people of the world. The American people honor all those Armenians who perished in the genocide that began 106 years ago today, he concluded. The government of Turkey said Biden's step would open a deep wound that undermines our mutual trust and friendship. The Armenian National Council, excuse me, the Armenian National Committee of America said the president's declaration has ended a century-long era of American complicity in Turkey's denials. So, um, one of the things that Biden actually had to do after this announcement, or maybe just before it, is that they shut down some U.S. embassies in Turkey fearing that there would be a, like, sort of like a violent backlash. And you have, you know, a lot of high-level officials in Turkey issuing statements basically denouncing Biden for saying this. Um, it, it's amazing to me that this is, you know, people are still denying this and debating it and trying to act like what happened to the Armenians wasn't a genocide. It definitely was a genocide. So Biden deserves credit for being the first U.S. president to officially recognize it. Um, but I mean, what a low bar we've set up, you know? It, it's like, the idea is this. Hey, if you're our ally, we'll overlook any of your wrongdoings because you're in the club. And so we look out for you. And this is a little bit of a break from that. But I'm sure there are politics that play into this as well. Like, there's got to be some sort of tension or disagreement between Turkey and the U.S. where Turkey did something to piss the U.S. off, which then led the U.S. and Biden to say, yeah, it was a genocide and we're going to recognize it. Oh, did I piss you off? Well, you shouldn't have done whatever it is, the thing where they have some sort of a disagreement. So, but I mean, I give them credit, but they also say apparently Ronald Reagan, like accidentally called it a genocide when he was president, which is kind of hilarious. (laughs) It's like, they didn't officially recognize it, but in a speech he said it was a genocide, and I'm curious what happened back then when that happened. Um, but really the whole point of like acknowledging that it's a genocide and talking about it as such, it's supposed to be the whole never again argument. When you talk about the Holocaust or when you talk about the Armenian genocide, it's like 
Well, we're talking about this to say never again, because we need to respect people all around the world, and people have human rights and dignity. And unfortunately, this declaration is being made by a guy who's still secretly signing off on the Saudi Arabian genocide in Yemen. Now, I don't know if you remember this from a, a few months ago, but you had Joe Biden say, oh, we're going to stop helping Saudi Arabia with their offensive bombing mission in Yemen. But then come to find out, they say, oh, we're going to keep doing the defensive one. But then obviously what's going to happen is everything will be defined as defensive, and the U.S. will just continue helping, aiding the bombing and the blockade, the embargo, starvation of people in Yemen. I mean, we've seen, this is a rare area where CNN actually did some fantastic work. We've seen the children in the hospitals, these mal, malnourished kids who are basically just bones, a lot of people dying. It's a country that's on the brink of famine, if not already in famine. They don't have food. They don't have medicine. There, there's bombings of hospitals and schools and open-air uh, open markets and mosques. And at the same time, Biden's like, recognizing a genocide, which was a genocide, which, again, he deserves credit for, the, the lesson of the recognition is not being implemented because if it was, you immediate, immediately would stop arming and funding and backing Saudi Arabia and helping them in their genocide in Yemen. I mean, it seems relatively straightforward, right? But no. So anyway, I'm convinced that there is some backstory we don't know. There's some reason why the U.S. is mad at Turkey because Turkey – crossed us in some way, and so that's why Biden is officially recognizing the Armenian genocide, because there has been a U.S. policy of denial forever, because Turkey's an ally of ours. So I'm sure there's some sort of disagreement. We don't know what it is yet, but uh, whatever that disagreement is, it bubbled over into this realm, and uh, now tensions got even worse. Okay. Here we go, baby. I got more for you on Biden. Joe Biden talked a lot about bringing dignity and decency back to the White House. But as soon as he's in office, we get stories like this. FEC documents. Joe Biden's inauguration got, one, got a $1 million donation from airspace defense giant Lockheed Martin, which makes F-35 jets a key part of the United Arab Emirates' $23 billion arms deal that the Biden administration is moving forward with after reviewing Trump's weapon sales. So do you understand what's going on there? I think this was originally reported, I think it was the New York Times, but I could be wrong about that. But anyway, they have the documents here that show it. The UAE gave a million dollars for Joe Biden's inauguration and then Joe Biden turned around and approved a Trump-era weapons deal that gives the UAE $23 billion worth of arms. So, in other words, Joe Biden will overlook human rights abuses and will give weapons to a tyrannical regime 
because his inauguration got a million dollars from that tyrannical regime. So much for decency and dignity and humanity and leading with our values. This is the exact opposite. The story that this reminds me of is actually the, uh, the Trump administration taking, I think it was the exact same number, a million dollars from the predatory payday loan industry for his inauguration. And then as soon as he got in power, he shut down the investigations into the predatory payday loan industry, shut down the cases that were being waged against the predatory payday loan industry, and killed the Obama-era regulations that were just put in place. See, this story tells you more about politics than almost any other story. Because this is really how the sausage is made. This is really how the system works. It's gross, and it's really transparent, and it's basically open bribery, but this is the way it works. They'll give you the cover story and the flowery language and the platitudes and the cliches, and then they turn around and they're all doing this sort of stuff. Now, that's not to do a full false equivalence and say all politicians are exactly the same, but it is to say they all partake to one extent or another, or 96% of them partake to one extent or another in corruption and legalized bribery. That's what this is. And so you don't get decisions that are made on foreign policy based on a concern for human rights or democracy or freedom or justice. You get business decisions. You get business decisions. And that's what this is. They gave me a million dollars. What am I going to do? Screw them out of, out of their, the deal that was already signed? Who am I to do that? Who am I to say, let's try to shut down some human rights abusers and, and not arm them? I mean, you guys know my position on this. I'm, I'm a big believer in there should be an official U.S. policy if you don't arm anybody who's a human rights abuser, who has a documented history of human rights abuses, which means you're basically not going to arm anybody. But a lot of our – it's such a giant industry. The weapons industry is such a giant industry. The so-called defense industry is such a giant industry that you have jobs tied to, to that in all 50 states. And so people feel, even if they're otherwise decent politicians, they feel obligated to keep that gravy train going. And so here we are. Nobody should be okay with this state of affairs. This needs to change. All right, next. In another unfortunate story about the Biden administration and their corruption, this is from CNBC, they say the brother of a top Biden advisor lobbied the White House this year on behalf of big health care companies. So they say key points. Jeff Ricchetti, the brother of longtime Biden advisor and White House counselor Steve Ricchetti, started lobbying the executive office of the president in the first quarter, according to new disclosure reports. The report showed Jeff Ricchetti's Lobbying activity on behalf of several healthcare companies took place from January through the end of March. Now, they responded to this story and said, that's not true. We never did that. But we have the disclosure documents that show exactly that, that he did. So I don't know why they're bothering to deny it. Um, see, now's the part where you've got to keep your eye out on exactly what the Biden administration does. Because we just saw this with the UAE story. The UAE, United Arab Emirates, gave Biden a million dollars for his inauguration. Biden turns around and approves a $23 billion weapons deal that was supposed to go towards them, and it was created under Trump. Biden gave it the green light, probably because he got a million dollars from the UAE. Okay, that's a big reason why. Should you be arming the UAE? No. 
Did Biden arm them? Yes. It's corruption. Now, we have to see what kind of, um, what kind of benefits, what kind of a windfall is there going to be for the healthcare companies that Jeff Ricchetti is lobbying on behalf of. There's going to be something. There's going to be something. And we've seen this time and time and time again. The health insurance companies, this is, the, this is a great example of this. The health insurance companies, what happened with them? Biden ran on the public option. Now, he snubbed Medicare for all. He's wrong about that, but he snubbed Medicare for all. But he said, I'm for the public option, which is supposed to be one step below Medicare for all. As soon as he got into office, immediately flipped on a dime. And he was like, did I say public option? What I meant was, let's do more Obamacare subsidies and let's expand COBRA. Well, what does that do? That's nothing but a giant giveaway, billions of dollars worth of a giveaway to the health insurance companies. Come to find out, Biden campaign has taken a lot of money from health insurance companies. This is how politics works. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Open corruption, legalized bribery, this is how it works. And it's even worse because now you're adding a nice little dash of nepotism. I mean, listen, we, we all saw it with the Trump administration where he had Ivanka and Jared and everybody in his family was just in the administration. Should have never been allowed. Hillary Clinton was president and Chelsea Clinton was picked to be in the cabinet. Everybody would have been like, that's the grossest thing I've ever seen. Trump did it and it barely, you know, made a dent because there's a thousand scandals a day with this guy. But this is similar. The brother of a top Biden advisor lobbied the White House on behalf of healthcare companies. So this is who Biden's listening to. This is who's got his ear. People who are representing the industry. People who stand to gain from executive decisions that, that Biden's making. Man, it's disgusting. I, you know, I said it before, I'll say it again. I really think that corruption should be punished much more severely than it is. I think corruption should be viewed on par with the worst possible crimes. I think you should, you should get life in prison for corruption. And I would lower the bar for what's considered corruption, because right now, you need to prove a quid pro quo, which basically means if you don't have people on tape saying, are you ready to do some corruption? Then you're not going to get them. If you don't have people on tape, I will give you this and you will give me this. We are making a corrupt deal. If you don't have that, you got nothing. So you lower the standard for what's considered corruption because all this stuff is corruption and you punish it with life in prison. You want to clean up the system? You have clean elections by law, no more private financing of elections and punish corruption severely. And then a lot of things will change. But we're so far away from that. And the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution to mean that money basically equals free speech. So we can't even change that without a constitutional amendment. But this is as gross as it gets. And you see this from Republican administration to Democratic administration to Republican administration to Democratic administration. They're all playing ball with the most powerful interests in the country. And this is who's got their ear. It's not some worker in a union in West Virginia that's got the ear of Joe Biden. It's the healthcare companies through his buddy's brother. That's where we are. Next. Next. Quite a story dropped the other day. This is something I'm really happy to share with you. A new study finds a single dose of one drug can ease anxiety and depression for five years. You know what drug that is? Psilocybin. Magic mushrooms. So there's a study in 2016 uh, where 
people who are, I think, term, terminally ill were given psilocybin, and they basically described a life-changing experience where they're no longer afraid of death and they're much happier. Um, so there's, I guess they re were running another study simultaneously. I don't know how that could have been part of the original study because those people probably would have died by now. Uh, but I guess they were running another study simultaneously to see how long the effects last. And it turns out that, you know, some freakishly high, they said, I think they said 71% to 100% of the people in the study report basically long-term uh, reduction of anxiety and depression. That's amazing. That's way beyond anything that any drug that's approved today for anxiety and depression can do. Way above and beyond it. I mean, listen, keep it real. Is this something Big Pharma is going to like? Probably not. Why? Because people rely on SSRIs, and it's basically a daily medication. And so Big Pharma can keep making money from SSRIs. Um, if you take one drug and you're good for five years, that's going to cut into some profits now, isn't it? Unless you jack up the price of the medication up front, but then you make it unaffordable, and it's, there's problems with that in principle and morality. Not that they care about principles or morality, but um, it, what an amazing finding. It, basically, they explain that you experience such a, something so profound that it doesn't fit into your current paradigm of the way the world works, and so you're sort of humbled. And you understand that you don't know anything. And it changes, it like resets your brain and changes your way of thinking about the world. And when you do that, it has phenomenal effects. It basically can fully change individuals from being one sort of a person to wiping the slate clean, hitting reset and refresh and being a totally different person. One that doesn't have all these hang-ups and concerns and worries and problems and negative thought patterns. And so it's really out of this world, you know. And to think it's grown from something that comes out of cow shit, that's crazy. It's where magic mushrooms come from. It's, it's nuts. It's nuts. Now, uh, you know, it's funny because this story sort of highlights a blind spot of my own. I've always been terrified of hallucinogenics and, and psychedelics. And the reason is I feel like I'm borderline enough anyway. Even if, if I smoke certain kinds of weed, I can, uh, I can get paranoid. And those are just mildly psychoactive. This is massively psychoactive. So, and I get paranoid when I do it. So I'm afraid of a bad trip. And I'm sure plenty of people have bad trips. I'm sure some people are wired more for psychedelics and some people aren't. And I fear I'm one of those people who aren't. But it does highlight a blind spot in my perception, which is that I definitely underestimated just how profound the positive impacts can be on people who are having positive impacts from it. This is just, this is groundbreaking. And um, on this alone, there should be a reclassification and there should be um, FDA and CDC approval. And, but of course, we're going to drag our feet on it because we have these taboos in society and we have, um, we have this incorrect prism and, and way of looking at it. And I don't know how long until that changes, but this should be, if the world made sense, this would be a big thing that leads to changes in those laws. Okay, next.
So George W. Bush is in the news again. He's been doing some interviews recently, and apparently he revealed who he voted for in the 2020 election. So was it Biden? Was it Trump? Let's take a look. Former President George W. Bush said that he wrote in his former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, when he voted for president in 2020. In an interview with People, Bush tells the magazine that he didn't vote for either Republican Donald Trump or Democrat Joe Biden in November's election, but cast his vote for Rice. Bush told Rice he voted for her according to People. She knows it, Bush said to People, but she told me she would refuse to accept the office. Rice served as Bush's Secretary of State during his second term as president. Okay, so this is hilarious. We'll get to exactly why it's hilarious in a second, but he went on to say, Bush went on to say, quote, he described the current state of the Republican Party as isolationist, protectionist, and to a certain extent, nativist. Think about that. This is, these are his main problems with the Republican Party today. They're isolationists, by the way. They aren't. They're not anywhere near isolationists. They're still jam-packed full of neocons who love endless war. Even Trump, who pretended like he was more of an isolationist, was a neocon. He put neocons in his administration and his policies. Most of them were neoconservative, with a handful of examples to the contrary, like with North Korea. Okay. Protectionist, so in other words, that means, oh, these Republicans, they, now they're against outsourcing jobs. No, they're not, but it would be awesome if they were. And then he said nativist. The nativist one, he has a point. There's, there's definitely more open nativism, which is just a like, dressed-up word for racism. That's more open in today's Republican Party than it was under Bush, but I would argue it was always there. It was just more latent, and the words were more coded, but the beliefs were always there. Um, anyway, so two out of the three things he's citing here is the main problem with the modern-day Republican Party are good things and not bad things. And, by the way, again, he's just empirically wrong that they are these things. The Republican Party, the elected officials in the Republican Party are not isolationist, which is just a pejorative for non-interventionist. They're not protectionist. And they are nativists, and they are more open about that, but Bush was nativist, too. Anyway, and just in a different way. So, um, the... The most important point about this story, where Bush reveals who he voted for, who he voted for really shows you, in his mind, what the future of the GOP is. And there's a massive giveaway here, guys. So in his mind, the future of the GOP is somebody like Condoleezza Rice. Who is Condoleezza Rice? What what does she represent? She represents all of the exact same policies as George W. Bush. But in the package of, she's a black woman. So in other words, let's go all in on the identity approach to politics. Say, look, we're progressive, we're people of the future, we're enlightened, we're not bigoted, backwards idiots. We understand the value of diversity. So let's put diverse faces on the same failed, terrible policies. Let's put diverse faces on neoconservatism and imperialism and trickle-down economics and tax cuts for the rich and corporations and deregulation and cutting the social safety net. Let's do that. And so it's as odious as it gets. Ultimately, these guys all agree with Donald Trump on 95% of the issues. They do. The only thing they don't like about him is the mean tweets and the unhinged nature Because they think that embarrasses them. That makes the Republicans look bad. That's what they don't like.
Okay, next. Next. Oh, God, I don't want to talk about AOC, but we got to talk about AOC. Ah! Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went viral again on Twitter. Somebody clipped this out of a talk she was giving. She mentions Biden and what she thinks of Biden to this point. Let's take a look. One thing that I will say is that I do think that um, the Biden administration, President Biden, has definitely exceeded expectations that progressives had. Uh, you know, I'll be frank. I think a lot of us expected a much more conservative administration. Um, and I think that his, not only what has ultimately come out, but the active invitation and willingness and collaboration uh, with progressives in his first 100 days, uh, or almost 100 days, uh, has been very impressive. And so while there are very, you know, there are areas where there are just plain areas of disagreement, um, I think that the, the actual conduct of the administration has absolutely been in good faith, but not just in good faith, but active incorporation of progressive legislation and also for those of us individually. I can at least say that um, there has been a lot of openness and willingness and flexibility in incorporating uh, many of our goals, requests, demands, et cetera. Um, And I think that it has been to the benefit of the country. You know, the sad reality is that I saw a new, a new poll that said 95% of Democrats are satisfied with Biden to this point. So she's definitely reflecting the majority of, of Democratic voter opinion right now. Okay, But I would love to ask her a very simple question, which is, what exactly are you referring to with how he surpassed your expectations? What exactly are you referring to? Now, you can make the argument, I ha- the bar was so low that he cleared that super low bar by like a millimeter. Okay, that would be a fair argument, I guess. Um, but I get the sense that's not what she's saying. She's saying he's doing a much better job than I expected. So what, what are the things you give him credit for? How is he doing a much better job? I, you know, I thought about this a lot. I'm trying to be fair. I'm trying to be kind here. I'm trying to think about what she could be referring to. Maybe she's referring to the fact that the COVID relief package was bigger than expected. You know, I know Biden apparently behind the scenes loved the fact that his COVID relief package is much bigger than what Obama's relief bill was a decade ago when we had the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. So he's patting himself on the back for being more bold than Obama. Maybe that's what she's referring to. Maybe she's referring to the fact that it has the child tax credit uh, expansion in it, which is good, or some stimulus checks, which are good, um, or that Biden came out and gave a speech uh, didn't give a speech, but did a statement where he said, I support the PRO Act and Amazon needs to let um, voters decide in Bessemer, Alabama, if they want a union. Maybe these are some of the things she's referring to. Um, If the argument is he's better than Trump, okay, congratulations. That's the lowest bar of all time. But let's get serious here. In no way, shape, or form is he embracing any of the defining left-wing policy goals. He just isn't. He just isn't. He didn't fight for the $15 minimum wage. I mean, don't even get me started. Medicare for All is dead and gone. He said he would freaking veto it if it came to his desk. 
but he said he was for the public option. He hasn't lifted a finger towards the public option. If anything, he's just pushed for COBRA subsidies, which is a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies, and expanding Obamacare subsidies, $200 billion, which is another giant giveaway to the health insurance companies. So he hasn't been good on health care. He's doing right-wing ideas on health care and giveaways to the health insurance companies. He hasn't pushed for the $15 minimum wage. He promised the $2,000 checks. He didn't do $2,000 checks. He did $1,400 checks. Um, we could go through a list. On foreign policy, he's been abysmal. The easiest layup of all time was to just get right back in the, uh, in the Iran agreement. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. He's continuing the policy of attempted regime change in Venezuela. I mean, the whole thing about, here's probably what she was referring to, the whole getting out of Afghanistan thing. Listen, if he actually does really get us out, I'll give Biden a tremendous amount of credit because that's the right policy. But it's really an open question now if he means get out as in let's get the 2,500 troops out and leave the 18,000 contractors and special ops people and intelligence agencies there. If, he, if that's what he means by get out, he gets no credit because that's not a withdrawal. You still have 18,000 boots on the ground that are just not military boots. They're intelligence operators and, and, and special ops people and contractors. So I'm just, I'm withholding my judgment on that. I know some people on the left are saying, no, he's not getting out. We know that's the case, period, the end. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that because the CIA is under the impression that we're getting out, getting out, and that they're going to have to get out. So we have to wait and see what happens. The bottom line is, if he gets out, I'll give him credit. If he withdraws and still leaves thousands of of boots on the ground, I'm not giving him credit. So we have to wait and see. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't add that to the list now of like things he deserves credit for, how he's far exceeded our expectations, because he hasn't followed through yet. You need to wait until there's a follow through. So I don't know what she's referring to. And it drives me crazy, because listen, guys, when we co-founded Justice Democrats, the whole point was to get a Tea Party of the left. AOC and all the Justice Democrats are supposed to actively be hostile to Biden, even if Biden was doing a good job. Your goal, your job is to say, here are the things you're not doing and you better do it and there are going to be consequences if you don't do it. And you use your leverage and you lose your power and you use your megaphone and you fight relentlessly because you're supposed to care more about the policy issues than any individuals or party loyalty. And she doesn't. She just doesn't. She just doesn't. And the saddest part of it all is this. What does she say at the end there? She likes, quote, the active invitation and willingness and collaboration with progressives. You know what she's referring to? We covered the story. I forget. I think it was Washington Post or some other. Cover the story. Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, what he does is he always retweets left-wing, group, left-wing groups and leaders of the professional left. And he takes phone calls from them and he talks to them and there's a collaboration and they have meetings with them. And so these people are being placated. They're being placated. Even like the Sunrise Movement thinks like, oh, we got a partner in this administration. You're being placated. They're pretending to treat you seriously and give you pats on the head. And then they go do the opposite policies, and then you go out there and sing their praises because they were just willing to talk to you. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Just the fact that, that behind closed doors, they're treating them with respect and dignity, and let me hear your opinion, and I'll tell you my opinion, and there's an open line of communication. Just the fact that there's an open line of communication, they've given up on the fight because they feel like, oh, they're collaborating with us and they're operating in good faith. No, they're not. They understand and realize that the bar is so low that all they have to do is talk to you and pretend like you're a serious person, and then you immediately start giving them massive credit. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. 
they are placating you. They are placating you, and it's working. All the left-wing groups, all the Justice Democrats, and it makes me sad, man, it really does, that it's this easy to dupe lefties into supporting, at best, a centrist administration, really a moderate Republican administration. I don't know what she's referring to or how he's surpassing expectations. She didn't give the specifics. I don't know what she's referring to. But what I can tell you is every issue I care deeply about, he hasn't done dick, and he's not going to. The only one is Afghanistan, and again, we have to wait and see if he actually gets out. And that's a coin flip. I don't know if he actually is. We'll see. Okay. All right, guys. Let me do two more for you. Loves to make their number one issue cancel culture. They talk about how they believe in free speech. um, They believe in open, honest conversation. And these stupid, petty, censorious lefties just want to shut down conversations and ban things they don't like. Well, would you look at this? Turns out that Republican politicians actually love cancel culture. John Adams said our Constitution is fit for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of every other, of any other. The average American watches about 30 hours a week on broadcast TV, and of course what starts on broadcast TV winds up on other screens as well. The Federal Communications Commission is tasked with keeping obscene and indecent content off the airwaves. While there are some especially responsible parents who raise their children with no TV in the house at all, as a practical matter, broadcast TV affects the moral norms of the nation. I have received complaints in my office, and rightfully so, about Cardi B and the Grammys. They wonder why we are paying the FCC if they feel that this should be in living rooms across the nation. I realize that Kamala Harris has used her fame to promote this performer, but I assure the FCC that millions of Americans would view her performance as inconsistent with basic decency. Wake up, FCC, and begin to do your job. The moral decline of America is partly due to your utter complacency. We have a pandemic. We have a depression. Or I'll be kind. At best, a recession a giant economic downturn. We have multiple wars, stagnant wages, skyrocketing poverty, increased homelessness, a class war waged against workers by the billionaires in the top 1%, extreme corruption in our government. And what this Republican politician decides to talk about on the floor of the House is Cardi B. He's outraged at Cardi B's Grammy performance. Listen, I'm a level with you guys. Did I see Cardi B's Grammy performance? No. Do I care what's in it? No. I know who Cardi B is. I've seen music videos and heard the songs. I'm sure she was shaking her ass and it was sexual and all that stuff. I don't care. I don't care. You don't want your kids to watch it. Turn the TV off. Make sure your kids don't watch it. Punish them if they do watch it. Why would you have the government get involved, ban and censor and deplatform things you don't like? So he's actually calling for censorship, for an anti-freedom of speech approach. He's actively calling for the government 
to, to censor things that go against his personal tastes. I don't agree with your personal taste, dude. I think you're a loser and a weirdo. I don't agree with your tastes. Why should you get to determine what other adults can and cannot see? This is the exact thing they accuse lefties of with cancel culture. He's doing here. You're doing cancel culture. This is what cancel culture is. I don't like it, so nobody should be able to see it. They should ban that. They should ban that because I don't think it's good personally. It's against my taste, my subjective taste. So I want to ban that and censor it and deplatform it and not allow people to see it and punish them. That's what I want to do. You're doing the exact thing that you despise about pink-haired weirdos on college campuses. Except it's even sadder for you because you're a grown-ass man. At least the kids with the pink hair, you can argue, are going through a weird phase in their life and it's growing pains and they're just coming into their own and they're trying to develop an ideology and a worldview. You're a grown-ass man, son. You're a grown-ass man. And in the middle of a pandemic, an economic collapse, multiple wars, stagnant wages, skyrocketing poverty, increased homelessness, corruption, etc., you're out there saying... Cardi B needs to be banned from the Grammys. How dare you show that performance? <laughs> what a bitch. What a little bitch. And guys, this is to remind you the original cancel culture was waged by the right. Of course it was. Are you kidding me? There's been, for the longest time, people on the right wanted to ban anything they disagree, anything that was not Christian enough, they wanted to ban. There was a, a jihad against rap music. You know, the whole point of the culture war was the right to be authoritarian and the left to say, hey, 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 hands off approach. Let people do whatever they want to do. They're not hurting anybody else. And that's where we are today. And you've seen it now with this. You saw it with the Lil Nas X thing where he released the Satan shoe and you had anti-cancel culture Republicans saying, cancel him, cancel him. They're hypocrites. They have no principles. They have zero principles. They just want to be the one to choose who gets censored and deplatformed. It's not that they're against censoring and deplatform. Full stop, deplatforming, full stop. They're not. This is a great example of it here. So Cardi B has broken Republican brains and made them become the thing that they claim to despise the most. Okay, next. 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 All right, final story of the day, y'all. Still got so many great things for you for the next show, you'll see. What I have here is probably one of the dumbest tweets of all time. And who this is from is terrifying. I'm going to hold off on that for a second. So Carolyn B. Maloney says, where are the women? And that's in response to this chart of the highest paid chief executives last year. Let's run through some of it. Paycom, Chad Richardson made $211 million. Oh, my God. One Life Healthcare, $199 million for Amir Dan Rubin. A healthcare company. Somebody made $200 million. Jesus Christ. T-Mobile, John Legere, $137 million. General Electric, Larry Culp, $73 million. Hilton, Chris Nassetta, $55.87 million. T-Mobile, Mike Seaver, $54.91 million. Formula One, Gregory... Mafi, 47.12 million. Netflix, Reed Hastings, 43.23 million. Anyway, the list goes on and on. You could see it there. By the way, this isn't even really a, a totally accurate list. Apparently, the head of Blackstone Financial Company made like 600 million last year or something. So I don't know 
why they're omitting certain industries or certain sectors and not others. But anyway, I digress. The response from a congresswoman was, where are the women? So in other words, she's not saying, oh my God, this wealth is egregious. We live in a country where half of working people make $30,000 a year or less. Tens of millions of people have no health insurance. We have at least 500,000 homeless people, including tens of thousands of homeless veterans. Where are priorities? What are we doing? This is insanity. This is insanity. How do we have this extreme wealth existing alongside a system where we have $1.6 trillion of student loan debt, where you start off behind the eight ball and you can't move forward because you're burdened by debt? She's not saying this is insane and we need higher taxes on the rich and better redistributive policies to give people a fair shot and make it more of a meritocracy. Her response is, no issue with the amount of money they're making, where are the women? We need more diverse faces in this list of egregious income from executives. That's her argument. All right, are you ready for the devastating fact, which had me floored when I read this the other day? Carolyn B. Maloney is the chairwoman of the Oversight Committee in Congress. So it's a business-related committee, looks into waste, fraud, and abuse. The head of a business committee in Congress responded to egregious wealth numbers from executives at a time of historic income and wealth inequality. And her only response was, where are the women? This is the Democratic Party in a nutshell. This is the corporate Democrats in a nutshell. It's the same. It's the hire more women guards tweet. Remember that? Like, well, we have, we're setting up these concentration camps. And instead of people who are, who are supposed to be the left party saying, Shut them down. The response is, hire more women guards. We've now diversified the intelligence agencies so we could overthrow democratically elected governments while being really inclusive. It's a, it's a parody of neoliberal corporate democratic identity politics. That's what this is. But it's real. There's a lot of people who think like this, man. There's a lot of people. They don't care that neoconservatism is our foreign policy approach and imperialism is our foreign policy. But they don't care. It's just, well, do we have a good gender ratio for the people who are bombing the innocent people or not? Oh, gross, absurd, extreme income and wealth inequality? Well, do we have an equal number of women among the executives? Because if we do, that's awesome. That's what I want. If we don't, we got to fix that. Not, hey, let's raise the marginal tax rate and tax these motherfuckers and, you know, give it in the form of pre-K or paid vacation time off or free college or health care. None of that, no. Just diversify, and then, then we're good. And you wonder why real lefties are so furious virtually all the time, and they feel like there's very little, if any, representation of our worldview. All right, guys, what a lovely show. 
I love you all very much. I'll talk to everybody soon. I'm going to have a phenomenal next show for you on Wednesday. Don't miss it. I'm out. Peace.